Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased this week to be joined by Andrew Morton, the royal reporter who had what I think most people would agree is the royal scoop of the 20th century when he published Diana, Her True Story in 1992. That book, published originally with the covert cooperation of Princess Diana, completely blew open the Prince of Wales's marriage and the difficulties in it. Now, 25-odd years on, there's a new edition being published, Diana, Her True Story in Her Own Words, a new edition from Michael O'Mara, which is revised and expanded and updated. And, Andrew, you've, this is kind of, you're returning, obviously, to, you know, the, the subject that really completely blew things open. How was it going back to kind of revisit this? How different does it look now? Well, there's, it, um, at the time, I just thought that it would be one book... You know, in a litany of uh, works about Diana over the next, you know, 50, 60 years. Nobody expected her to die as she did. So going back to uh, what she had to say, going back to all the memos and the speeches and all the the other paraphernalia of um, life with her assumed a greater importance because obviously she's no longer with us. And and you, you realise yourself as well that, you know, um, we're not going to live forever. So best to go back over the material and, and make sure that it's all in proper order for people who come uh, after me. Well, there's, there's new material as well, isn't there? I mean, you used some sort of techniques to scrub up the tapes. You found, found more stuff. What does the new material tell us about her? Yes, I mean, it's... It, I mean... Yeah, one of the things that, that emerges, which is kind of quite ironic, is the fact that uh, she fell out with her mother, Frances Shankid, after the wedding. And we we discovered this by going through the tapes more carefully. And she didn't speak to her for a while. And that, there's a kind of an irony in that, because with the latest royal wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, we've got a situation where Meghan is not speaking to her father. And I do find it kind of... This wasn't because it was suggested that Francis was selling stories to the papers, though, is it? No, it was, it was, the, 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 it was a personality clash. They were, you know, she felt that her mother was being too focused on her own uh, drama and not enough on what was going on in her life. Um, uh, Diana felt that her mother should have been rather more supportive than she was. Of course, the, this happened in private, not in public, unlike Meghan and her and her father, Tom Markle's spat. Yeah, I mean, that thing of the private and the public, this book was, you know, when it came out, kind of a game-changer and it sort of presaged a bit what the way royal coverage was going to go. You know, I mean, we're now in a situation where almost nothing's private, aren't we? Well, actually, I'd, I'd, I'd take issue with that. I would say that what, what's happened over the last 15 years, 20 years since Diana's death, really, is that the the compact between the mass media and the royal family has has been reintroduced so that, you know, they will get access to, or, uh, to official events and so on and, and, you know, official portraits. But you very rarely these days see paparazzi pictures of, say, Meghan out and about in Notting Hill or elsewhere, or, um, or Harry out and about. It, it seems to me that they do, they've, they've worked out a system where they've got a, a private life and a, and a public persona, which has always been the dream of every member of the royal family since, oh, Edward VIII onwards. Do you think that's a good thing? Well, it's, it's the reality at the minute, at the moment. I, I think that given the 
the phone tapping scandals, the Leveson inquiry. I think that the British media has been pretty well, well chastened, uh, especially with its relationship with the royal family. And the royal family these days have very much got the upper hand. Do you, I mean, one of the things, obviously, you know, as you describe it, she said, you know, I want this voice, I want to get... She, she, she saw herself not as someone safe within a public persona, but as someone who was kind of imprisoned in a public persona. You know, the, the setup that you've described was something she felt oppressed by. But do you look back on it now and think, to some extent, this let the genie out of the bottle? I mean, it wasn't quite your lookout, of course, but it was the first huge salvo in what became a very public divorce battle where the private details of their life were weaponized in palace briefings. I mean, you got the, you got it from the horse's mouth, but were weaponized in palace, palace briefings in the press in a way that, you know, probably can't have been great for the kids, for the, you know, it became a very bloody sort of battle. What do you feel about that? Well, I think that, I think that William and Harry at the time knew their parents as nobody else because they were their parents. And so, you know, whatever was written was not relevant to their perceptions of their parents. They loved their parents. They they uh, felt close to their parents no matter what was out there. And what I also found, you know, inescapable is the fact that the, both parents felt that they could say things in public and felt that their children could cope with that. So, for example, Prince Charles admitted on primetime television his adultery with Camilla Parker Bowles. Diana, of course, spoke to Martin Bashir for the panorama, famous Panorama programme. So both parents went along with the, the, the idea that their children could somehow cope with it. And do you, do you think they were right about that? I mean, they were, they were both pretty young. I mean, Diana particularly, one of the things that really striking in that, you know, when I think when you, in your new introduction you say, you know, she was 29 or something when she was talking to you, wasn't she? That's right. Yeah, she was. She was young, and and people say, oh, well, of course, she was going through a, a, a separation from her husband. He lived a separate life, and so therefore, it, it meant that she was colouring the context of her relationship because of that disappointment. I would argue that the early part of her life inside the royal family, where she was throwing herself downstairs whilst pregnant with Prince William at Sandringham, where she was making these half-hearted suicide bids or desperate cries for help, as you call them, using a, you know, everything from lemon zest and, and pen knives to cut herself. And when she was speaking to me, she'd actually come to terms with the difficulties of both her marriage and also her life inside the royal family. So she was actually looking forward to a brighter future. And, of course, the irony is, she, she, at the end, she was, you know, the light, there was light at the end of her personal tunnel, Sadly, it ended up as the flashlight of a paparazzi. Yeah. How much did you feel she was in control? I mean, you know, Clive James, you again quote him as saying that he had lunch with him. She said, oh, I had nothing to do with that Andrew Morton book and that she, you know, told him an absolute whopper with absolute plausibility. Do you look back on it and think to any extent, you know, the story she was telling me was partial or the story was, you know, that, that she was more in control of what she was how she was using her relationship with you well i think lo- looking back i mean she was very much in control of of what she was saying because obviously i had no control over what she was about to say because i was interviewing her by by proxy through an intermediary so i would write down the questions he would trundle off to kensington palace on his push bike 
uh, sit down in the sitting room, ask her a series of questions, and she would give the answers. And that was very. Did much you supply down. the questions in a kind of list? I yeah, and I, so so you know he'd just go through the list. There was no f- chance of a follow up or anything. So it was it was a pretty amateurish setup. But at the same time, she would be on the telephone to him most days about. The, you know the quotidian details of her life, and that, and so they would become integrated in in the book. So there were episodes happening whilst whilst I was researching and writing the book itself. Most notably, when Prince William was hit on the head with a golf club, club by one of his school friends at, at his private school and was rushed to hospital with a depressed fracture. Well, I kind of lived through that on a minute by minute basis because. Uh, the intermediary, a chap called Dr James Colthurst, he was a, a medical man, and she was calling him for, you know, for, for general medical advice, and, and 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 so that gave a vivid sense of what was going on in her life. And people say, oh, well, it wasn't that the, the book itself was partial, and of course it was partial. It was, hence the title, her true story. It wasn't the true story. Initially, we. <laughs> The irony is, she did want it to be called the true story, but we resisted that. We said, no, you can't have that because it's not the true story. It's not a, an objective account. It's your very much your perspective. And we even mocked up a, a, a jacket cover of uh, Diana, the true story, and, and then you know convinced her that that her true story was the the, the preferable and more accurate title. And how long was it? I know mean, I, I know this is a matter of public record, but uh, it sets my mind before. It was something that, you know, you were able to acknowledge or she was able to acknowledge in public that she'd, she'd been behind this. Because you must have weathered a lot of people saying Morton's making this stuff up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got enormous flack. If you look, look back at the, the, the stuff that was going on, I mean, I, you know, in, 19, in June 1992, when the book first came out, I was, you know, it was requested that I was be sent to the Tower of London by by various members of Parliament. The, my my daughters, who were only little at the time, saw a cartoon of being a cartoon of being, me being stretched out on a rack at, in the Tower with the Queen looking on approvingly, and they both burst into tears. So so it was quite it was it was a very tough period. And what people you know don't realise is that I, from day one I could have said, well, of course Diana's behind this book, and you know it's, she's the one who who inspired it, but. Obviously, I, I treated her as a kind of a, a a deep throat, a deep background individual, and that everything that was said in the book was endorsed by one of her friends or or some uh, event that had happened. Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit, I mean, did you have any interactions with Diana, you know, after the book had dropped and the sort of bomb had gone off? Did you ever see her again? I mean, did you ever go and have a sort of private lunch with her or have a phone conversation with her? What was your... Was the relationship then sort of officially over? Well, yes, I mean, we we we, we kept in very close touch. I mean, we didn't meet up because obviously it was too dangerous, but we kept in close touch to, to the extent that where she... When she separated from Prince Charles, myself, uh, James Colthurst, the intermediary, and even my publisher, Michael O'Mara, acted almost like her kind of shadow court would su- would suggest for example that you know she's wearing the black of mourning very often in her public cl- in her her public engagements we suggest that she you know she might want to change change it up a bit because um she looked too 
like she was you know in grief and of course she was grieving her relationship but but what we were trying to do was you know encourage her to a brighter future and did did you have thoughts of doing i mean you've said you thought there'd be a whole run of books i mean at the time of her death had you been thinking you know i'm going to write another book about diana and was that something that was sort of on the agenda no, actually, ironically, I was writing a book about President Moy of Kenya, would, would you believe, simply to get away from all the, the, the Diana stuff because it, I'd had it for you know, every single day for several years and I was given this opportunity to write a book about uh, the, the President uh, and, you know, never been to Kenya, never been on safari and so I took that opportunity and I was working away on that uh, at the time that Diana died. Yeah, and how do you think the sort of, you know, I mean, what's your impression of how the younger generation of royals, I mean, we know that William doesn't like the paparazzi one bit and he's got good reason not to, how they are dealing with and do deal with the public interest in them? Well, I feel that what they try and do is uh, is ignore the, the, the standard royal motto, never complain, never explain. And they do complain and they complain uh, vigorously through their lawyers and often and they've uh, I think that that compact between the media and the and the palace has been kind of reinstated with them very much having the upper hand obviously what they can't do anything about is social media and hence the fact that they're now trying to stop the so-called trolling of Meghan and Catherine by some you know these people who go online and say the most outrageous things about them that's a little bit incanute-like, it seems to me, but nonetheless, that's what they're endeavouring to do. But when it comes to the mass media, when it comes to the, as you might call the establishment media, they can control that to a greater degree than they did in the past because they've not been reluctant to use the law. Um, I suppose I'm curious, as someone who's been sort of out of the day-to-day game for quite a while, do you, do you think the fun has gone out of it for... The people who are doing it now, given that that compact's been reinstated, do you? I mean, do you sort of miss it at all? I think that um, when I was a royal correspondent back in the mid nineteen eighties, it, it was the most fun you could have with your clothes on, and you know it was a, a lot of fun, and you did have you know a lot of hanging around. But I think that um, these days, I think the relationship between the royal family and the media is far more distant than it used to be. Although, although, having said that, it was never particularly close. I think that now they, it, you know, it's far more regimented. It's the the palace is far more sophisticated in the way they use the the media, and the way that they uh, push the agendas of the various members of the royal family. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think the the, the sort of environment in which Diana exists? I mean, they've they've become more sophisticated about the media, but the environment that she found so difficult. Do you think that that could happen again? I mean. People are always, oh, Kate's another Diana, oh, Megan's another Diana. Do you think there's a realistic chance that the sort of men in grey suits world that Diana, you know, claimed she was a victim of is one that's still there? Or has the royal family changed in, in a way that makes a new Diana impossible? Obviously, um, you've got somebody like Meghan Markle, who was an activist and a successful TV actress before she entered the royal family. Nonetheless, I'm sure that she's had some dark moments of the night trying to work out, you know, the various 
elements of protocol and so on. The, the men in grey, the advisors, will will be there. It may be less formal, maybe more informal, but nonetheless, the the abiding lodestar is, you know, how is this going to affect the monarchy? So, you know, Catherine, Meghan, Harry and William, the Fab Four, are, are, the, are the ones who will, as it were, define and refine our, our perception of the monarchy going forwards. Yeah. Do you have any regrets at all about the book, the way it went, the impact it has? Or did you think it was an important kind of opening up of, of something that needed opening up? No, I'm I'm very proud of the fact that uh, Diana asked me to uh, be her biographer. I, I think that, and if she'd been alive today, I'd, I'd be saying to you, well, she had nothing to do with the book. So the the fact that I kept her in the background, gave her the wiggle room, as it were, to make sense of her life. And I think that the book was important. It, 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 and at the same time, it was a coherent way of telling her story as opposed to, you know, the kind of the raucousness of the tabloid headlines or, or uh, say, a BBC documentary. It gave people the chance to look at her background, her life, what her challenges, who she was as a, as a person. And I think millions of people around the world, especially women, saw in the trajectory of her life elements of their own lives and hence the mass outpouring of grief when she died, that she was a charismatic figure who had a great impact not just on the monarchy but on the world and there are not many people that you can talk about like that so and I'm obviously and I'm very proud to have been part of that process. Is there anything that you you know obviously now she's gone you you know in the course of the interviews you said you know you you couldn't ask follow-ups you couldn't was there anything you wish you'd asked her or you wish you'd probed her on or pushed her on that you didn't get the chance to? Possibly more about her relationship with the Queen and obviously with James Hewitt. She never really came clean on that. She always just said he was a friend who taught the boys how to ride. So that was a, obviously a, a, you know, a big omission from, that, from, the, from, from the book. And obviously a, a, a little bit more about the characters of the emerging characters of William and Harry, their relationship. But they were only young at the time, but it would be, it would be very instructive to have to have had a little bit more about how she felt the boys or the young men would uh, cope going forward. Oh. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. Andrew Morton, thank you very much indeed for your time. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Sam. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.